Proverbs chapter number 10. Proverbs chapter number 10. We're entering a new section of Proverbs. Proverbs 1.1 starts out the Proverbs of, of Solomon, the son of David. Here in chapter 10, verse 1, it begins the Proverbs of Solomon. Just, that's the statement. You find it again in chapter 25 and verse 1. These, also, these are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. So I mentioned last week that the first nine chapters basically present the nature, the value of God's wisdom. And it clarifies that this wisdom is not something to learn. It is that which we receive from the Lord himself. And it really is personified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we see wisdom's voice speaking and wisdom's path and wisdom's direction all trying to help us live a life uh, that is pleasing to the lord that represents or shows out that wisdom and if you want to boil it down to one simple statement it really presents wisdom that it, it come it it is uh, that which comes with a from a right relationship with uh, the Lord our God. Well, beginning here in chapter 10, through chapter 25, one man called it an uh, anthology of wisdom. Now, an anthology is a collection. It can be a collection of poems. It can be a collection of writings. It can be a collection of music. Uh, but uh, it is statement after statement after statement and they're not grouped together in any real uh, obvious way. Uh, they're just individual. You could almost, from chapter 10, verse 1, through the end of chapter 24, study these uh, chapters, just take a verse, and it stands alone, which that is rarely true in our study of the Bible. One of the first rules of hermeneutics is context. What, what is going on? What's before it? What's after it? Well, this section of Proverbs is not that way. Uh, a man who was a, a clergyman in the 1800s in England put it this way. They are, for the most part, unconnected sentences, remarkable for profound thought and acute observation, expressed in an antithetical or illustrative form, the whole comprising a divine system of morals or universal application, a treasury of wisdom in all its diversified detail, personal, domestic, social, or civil. So in other words, what he's saying is it's not written in a narrative form. These are statements of wisdom for us to learn or study from. Uh, so these first five verses in chapter 10 is an antithetical uh, statement of a wise son versus a foolish son. It's one of those Hebrew poetry uh, usages of comparison. And uh, that's what we're going to look at tonight. The wise 
first is the foolish son. So Proverbs 10, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivereth from death. The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but he will, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. So in this comparison of the wise versus the foolish child, uh, God uh, just makes a simple statement of contrast. So three thoughts that comes out of this. Number one, we, we just focus on the wise son for a moment. Uh, this is a statement that you find throughout the Proverbs. You see it in verse one, a wise son maketh a glad father, verse five, he that gathereth in summer is a wise son. Turn forward to Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, verse 1. A wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. Look at chapter 15 and verse number 20. A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man despiseth his mother. Verse 23, a man hath joy by the answer of his mouth and a word spoken in due season how good, oh, I'm sorry, that's supposed to be chapter 23. I was wondering there. Chapter 23, Proverbs 23, verse 15. My son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, even mine. Uh, verse 24, the father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Chapter 27, verse 11, my son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him that reproacheth me. So you see this theme is sort of cycles around throughout these Proverbs where we see the emphasis on a wise son. Now this contrast uh, you find a lot in Proverbs. There's a contrast between the wise, the foolish, you see the contrast between the glad or, and the sorrowful, the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, so these are antithetical. These are contrasts that are used. So let's, let's just think a little bit about this wise son. The Bible gives some illustrations of wise sons. How about Noah? Noah brought joy to his father. Genesis chapter 5 tells us about his father whose name was Lamech or Lamech and uh, he, uh, he it says of Noah in uh, verse 29 of chapter 5 and he called his name Noah saying the same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed he said he's going to be a comfort to us his name is Noah well, the very next chapter, the Bible tells us, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
And, you know, I'm at the stage of life with adult children. It, it brings great joy to Jan and I to see our children healthy, spiritually, uh, going on for God, uh, determining the path of life based on the Word of God, wanting to live a life of biblical wisdom. They're not perfect. I can tell you their flaws just like they can tell you mine, uh, but they, they have a heart that wants to please God. So, so we understand the joy of a wise son. Solomon, the writer of this, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon was a wise son. In fact, David prayed that Solomon would desire God's wisdom. First Chronicles 22, verse 12, only the Lord give thee wisdom and understanding and give thee charge concerning Israel that thou mayest keep the law of the Lord thy God. So David's desire, and he was praying to that end. God, I pray Solomon will have a heart to seek after you. Well, his prayer was answered because Second Chronicles 1, verse 10, God came to Solomon. Solomon, tell me what you'd like. Solomon didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for power. He didn't ask for expansive authority. In verse 10, he said, Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this thy people that is so great? So there are plenty of illustrations of wise children that were a blessing to their parents as verse number one, a wise son maketh a glad father. But now let's look at the contrast. Verse one goes on to say, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Now, when the Bible says someone is a fool, it is not speaking about something they had no control over. You know, it's not identifying somebody that is simple-minded from birth. The word literally means stupid or silly, but it's referring to a person who is arrogant, who is unteachable, who is self-sufficient, you could use the word rebellious. So a fool in scripture is somebody who has all the opportunities to know God, to walk with God, to have God's wisdom, and says, no, I'm gonna do my own thing, I'm gonna go my own way. And the Bible says here in verse one that a foolish son, somebody with that kind of an attitude, is a great heaviness to their mother. Now, those of you who have children at home that you're still investing in to rear up, this should be a great motivation in how you rear your children. Why should you train your children to obey? Why should you work not just on the actions, but on their attitudes? Because you don't want them to grow up and be a fool. You don't want, in God's economy, you don't want them to be, in, you know, rejecting, no, I'm not going to do that. It's interesting how, you know, rebellious parents, those who have an attitude, no authority is going to tell me what to do, produce rebellious children. So it's easily caught, the attitude is. And so we ought to work at rearing our children to have a submissive heart, a yielded spirit, to the word of God and to uh, God himself. 
A foolish child causes great grief to their parents. You know, you can deal with a lot of things that are disappointing, but having a child go astray who had the opportunity to do right brings great, great grief. And that's what the word heaviness means. It's a word of sorrow or grief or even a depressed spirit. This is one who says no to authority, no to God, no to God's word, and they create great difficulty for themselves because you reap what you sow, but great heaviness to the heart of their parents. Are there any illustrations of those kind of people in the Bible? Well, yeah. How about Esau? Esau was a foolish son. He brought great grief to his parents. Why? He allowed bitterness to cause him to have an attitude. Okay, I'm going to show him. And the Bible says in Genesis 26, 34, and Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Notice verse 35, which were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. They had taught their boys, you know, you marry from our people. You, you stay within the family of God. And Esau said, you know what? I was cheated out of my birthright. God hasn't been fair to me. This isn't right. I don't like my circumstances. And instead of growing through the circumstances and becoming better, he got bitter and he was a heaviness to his parents. Now, of course, unfortunately, that was a dysfunctional home. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob. Rebecca favored Jacob over Esau. That's never a good thing in a family. So we see the wise child how they bring great blessing and joy to their parents, a foolish child who brings great grief and sorrow and heaviness to their parents. Then in these verses, we see the contrast between the two. And I find three here. Notice verse two. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivereth from death. The first thing that stood out to me was they have different values, different values. A, a foolish son can be profitable. They can be successful. They can be driven by the things of this world. They can have things. But that does stand out as a bit of a unique statement because as we study the Proverbs so often in Proverbs, the teaching is the righteous are those who prosper and the wicked are those who suffer loss. Uh, you can look down at verse 22 of chapter 10. It says, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich and he addeth no sorrow with it. Or you can turn back to chapter three in verse number 15. It's talking about wisdom in verse 13. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, the man that getteth understanding. Verse 15, she is more precious than rubies and all the things that thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Now understand the Proverbs are principles. They're not promises. 
in, in the general sense, you will see these principles to be played out. But here in verse number two, it's talking that the foolish can gain things in this world, but uh, it, it, notice it says treasures of wickedness profit nothing. So even if they are successful and even if they do have great gain and even if they do have much of this world's good, they don't get any real benefit from it. They profit them nothing. Proverbs 23 and verse number five says, Wilt thou set thy, uh, thine eyes upon that which is not for riches? Certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. So what's the contrast here? The different values. The wise wants to please God most of all and will trust God for uh, taking care of them. Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. Where the foolish has a value system of I want everything this world has to offer and I'm going to go for it. But what the proverb says here in verse number two is it profits them nothing. Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus asked a powerful question regarding this topic. Mark 8.36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Some examples. How about Ahab? Ahab just wanted Naboth's vineyard. It's not like he couldn't have had anything else he wanted, but that was Naboth's in inheritance. He, he wasn't just going to sell it. It was a very special place. It was in the family kind of a thing. So what did Jezebel do? Oh, I'll take care of that for you. A wicked woman, she, she had Naboth killed under trumped-up charges. So Ahab got what he wanted, what he pined for. But he didn't get to enjoy it because he faced the judgment of God. His soul withered up under the righteous judgment of God. Or how about Achan? God told the people as they went into Jericho, Jericho is the first fruits. It's all for me. Don't take any of it. The walls of Jericho fell down. Achan and the uh, army followed Joshua into battle. And Achan saw some nice garments of the latest Babylonian culture. And he saw a couple of wedges of gold. And all this city, uh, it's not, nobody's going to miss it. And he took it home and he buried it in, under the tent floor. He had it, but he didn't enjoy it. And his entire family faced God's judgment for Achan's avarice. Or how about Gehazi? The prophet Elisha's servant, remember Naaman came with leprosy. The prophet says, go down to the Jordan River. Naaman, that's ridiculous. The rivers at home are better. Finally, he goes down. He dipped seven times. He's healed of his leprosy. He offers the prophet, let me, let me give you you know, uh, something for your services. The prophet says, no. Gehazi listens to all that. Naaman and his entourage leave and Gehazi chases him down. 
He lied and said, well, you know, the prophet changed his mind. He thought maybe he could help some of the sons of the prophets. You know that what you offered him? It's nothing for himself. It's to help somebody else. Naaman said, absolutely. From pure heart, he loaded Gehazi down. Gehazi goes back and the prophet said, Gehazi, don't you think I know where you've been? And Gehazi got the leprosy that Naaman used to have. It's an interesting thought. You can read it there, 2 Kings chapter 7, the four lepers outside the gate. Some commentators suggest maybe that was Gehazi's sons or Gehazi and his three buddies. We don't know. But the point is, he got what he wanted, but he never got to enjoy it. The treasures of wickedness profit nothing. But how about the epitome of examples? Judas. He got the 30 pieces of silver. But he was so guilt-riven, he goes back and throws it on the ground. Please take this back. And the self-righteous Sanhedrin, oh no, we can't do that. And he went out and hanged himself. You see... You can get what you want. You can set your mind to it. It's amazing the, the way God made us. We can, we can aspire to things. We can drive to get things. We can accomplish things. But the Bible says without the right heart, if we're not being wise and operating within the direction of God, it's as if it was nothing. But notice the second half of the verse. But righteousness delivereth from death. The righteous can live a life free of guilt, free of, uh, of these kind of fears of the judgment of God, without guilt, without the chastening of God. When your goal is not gold and your goal is God, you have a free life. The book of Esther really is a story of somebody who wanted Got it, but lost it. Haman, driven by power, driven by authority, anti-Semite to the core, wipe out the Jews. But Mordecai, who was just faithful to God, God directed in the circumstances to remind the king of one time when Mordecai showed his loyalty and God elevated Mordecai and Haman was hanged on the gallows he had made to hang Mordecai. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing. You want a contemporary illustration? A despicable character by the name of Jeffrey Epstein. He had more money than you and I can even imagine. But he was wicked and vile. Finally, the game was up and he hanged himself. The treasures of wickedness profit nothing. You see, the wise realize that there are some things more valuable than gain. Some things more valuable than a big retirement account, a fancy house, and so on. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. And he added no sorrow with it. 
There's a great verse of scripture to help us guard our hearts in this covetous day. So the wise and foolish, they have different values. But secondly, we see the wise and foolish have different trust. Verse 3. The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. What do you trust in for your provision? Yourself, your intellect, your experience, or your God? Psalm 34, verse 9, O fear the Lord, ye saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. What does that say? There is nothing you need. You, there's nothing uh, that you need that God will not provide when you walk in the fear of the Lord. Or a little more even graphic verse, Psalm 37, 25 the psalmist said, I've been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. God will provide our needs. Maybe not our wants, but our needs. Elijah ran from Mount Carmel, fearful of Jezebel. He ends up out in the wilderness and God fed him by the ravens. Now, I'm not sure that I would choose that delivery system, but beggars can't be choosers, you know? The children of God rebelled against God and would not cross at Kadesh Barnea. I just preached on that passage on Monday in chapel, asking them if they're living by fear or faith. But God in his grace, until that entire generation died, provided manna every day. Now I can, I, I'm a pretty level person and I don't, you know, I'm not a foodie. I don't get up and say, oh, I want this. Or Jan says, what do you want for dinner? I say, whatever you want to make and drives her crazy. But I would get tired of manna for 40 years every day. I, I would get a little weary of that. But what else were they going to eat? God provided for his people. Later on, Elijah was fed by the widow of Zarephath. She thought she only had enough for she and her son. One, one loaf, they were going to sit down and die. And Elijah said, trust God, feed me first. And God provided for her family throughout the remainder of the famine. The point I'm making is this. You seek after what you can do and that's all you'll get. You seek after God and you'll see what he can do. And you'll never regret it. The Apostle Paul, he just went town to town planting churches, depending on God. Occasionally made a tent, sold a tent, went on. What, what was his testimony? Philippians 4 verse 18. He said, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. What am I saying? If, if, you're, if we're going to live 
as a wise son of God, we're going to have a different value system than the world around us, and we're going to trust in our God, not in ourself. And one more, thirdly, we'll have a different work ethic as well. This is very practical. Mom and dad, you have kids at home. You better take note here. Verse 4, he becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He gathereth in summer a wise son. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. What's he say? The wise are diligent. They work hard. And God blesses that. It's good to have a good work ethic. Diligence in business will be blessed. Diligence in school is reflected on your report card. Diligence in your Christian walk is reflected in your relationship with God. It's blessed. Diligence spiritually, physically, it always brings growth. I'm glad my dad taught me that it's honorable to work. I'm glad I learned that at an early age. But he says not only is the diligence shown in the wisdom. Notice verse fool, uh, verse four. The second half talks about the fool, but the I mean, verse the first part of the verse. He that becometh poor dealeth with a slack hand, careless, unconcerned, not diligent. Verse five: The wise doesn't procrastinate. They prepare for lean times. Now's the time to work. Winter's coming. Harvest now. Don't put it off. If there is a chief sin that many people deal with, it's procrastination. Yeah, you know, I, I don't like this job. I'll put it off. Put it off. Put it off. Put it off. That's not a mark of a wise child of God. Make ourselves do what we need to do. But fools just sleep. And what does, what does that do? It brings shame. I'm going to meddle here, and I'm going to give you my opinion. So you can disagree. You're wrong, but you can disagree. You're not helping your children if you let them sleep all day. There's a time to get up. There's a time to go to bed. Now, holidays, you want to do something different, celebrate? Sure, break the routine. My dad, when I was 12, 13, 14, that age, my dad cleaned the church. And he said, you know, son, you're going to help me clean the church. He didn't say, do you want to help me clean the church? He said, you're going to help me clean the church. I said, okay. I'll take you out for breakfast. That'll be your pay. Okay. We're leaving at 5.30. Oh, that wasn't okay. We can do the work at 9. Why 5.30? That was my dad. My dad had unique ways of waking me up. He would call one time softly from the door. I better be out of bed. Because the next time he came by, which was normally not more than 30 seconds, every cover on the bed was gone. Gone. One time, I must have been really slow moving because he brought in a frozen can of orange juice and introduced me to it. 
I promise you, I got up when Dad called. Now, you know, I love him. He was a wonderful man. And when we get to heaven, I'll, I'll interrogate him on that child-rearing technique. But the point is, you know, all these years, I've had to get up very early, go to work, put in a lot of hours, because that's what God's put on my plate. I love the morning. Jan, she said, why don't you just, it's your day off. Why don't you sleep in? I said, I can't. Number one, I almost never hear my alarm. This morning I did and it scared me to death. What is that noise? <laughs> you know, it, it, is, it is healthy because one day those, those children are going to be adults and they have to function in society and they're going to have a job and they need to be on time and they need to put, uh, put in a full day's work and not procrastinate whatever it is that their job is. They need to, that, that's biblical wisdom. You see, the Bible is very practical. This is the first of many proverbs that describe the contrast between laziness and diligence. Carelessness and consideration, conscientiousness. And the principle is this, wisdom and diligence bring gain. It brings prosperity, but foolishness and laziness will bring poverty and disgrace. As you look at this little brief passage, we see a flow that in general teaches us righteous people People who have a heart for God will be diligent workers, will see the provision of God in their life, and will trust God whatever they face. That's a great way to live. So, mom and dad, rear your kids to be wise sons and wise daughters, to find joy in work and accomplishment, and to be self-disciplined, to be able to make themselves get up and do the things that they need to do, not the things they want to do, so that they can be a success in life, but they can be a success in their walk with God.